It's great to see you. Why don't you open your Bibles up again to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, um, and I'm going to pray before we look at that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words. Lord, would you help us now to understand it? Spirit, would you open it up to us? And Lord, would you help me as I preach? And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I wonder if you've ever had to go to a difficult meeting. The kind of meeting where you know you're going to have to confront someone. And so you know there's going to be a considerable level of conflict, awkwardness, discomfort. Maybe you've had to let someone go at work because they've been repeatedly underperforming and it just isn't working out. Maybe you've had to confront a friend who sinned against you and hurt you. And you know the right thing to do is to get it all out in the open and work it out. The worst meeting that I ever had to go to was a meeting at the police station at 17. The night before, I had been caught doing 48 and a 30, and I was confronted by a lovely police officer who made me pay a fine and get some points on my license. Um, not my finest hour. When meetings like that come up in our calendars, we dread them, don't we? Unless you're one of those people who really love confrontation. But I suspect most people feel that nervous feeling in the pit of their stomach at the thought of having to confront someone. It's not something we look forward to, is it? Now, I'm trying to get you to remember that kind of situation and how it felt. Because in our passage this evening, the Apostle Paul finds himself in a similar situation. He is preparing to be with the Corinthians in person after being apart from them for quite a while. And Paul fears that when he meets them again, there's going to be conflict. He is anxious that difficult things will have to be said. He knows that when he gets back to Corinth, he might not get a very warm reception. He doesn't know exactly how he's going to find the church. He might have to deal with some tricky situations. Paul visited the church for the first time when he planted the church, but sometime after he left, he got a concerning report which prompted him to make a short, unexpected, and painful second visit. Paul was meant to go back for a third time shortly after that, but he thought it was best to let the dust settle a bit. And so he decided to write a letter instead. And that letter is now lost, but we know it was heavy. It was a letter that called for repentance. And Paul says he wrote it out of great distress and anguish of heart. But now that there's a bit more water under the bridge here, at the end of the book, Paul says he's ready to visit for a third time. A big part of Paul's purpose in writing this letter was to prepare, him, prepare them for this next visit. So as he finishes things off, he starts talking about what he wants to happen before he arrives. If you're into old music like me, or sorry, music of a slightly older vintage, um, you might have heard of a band called The Temptations. And they sang a song that went, get ready, because here I come. And that line encapsulates what Paul is doing in the rest of this book. It's the thread that holds this section together. He's saying, get ready, because here I come. It's time to get yourself sorted out, because I'm on my way to see you. And if I don't find you how I want to find you, then we're going to have an extremely awkward and difficult meeting. I'm going to have to use the authority the Lord gave me to exercise church discipline. He doesn't want to do it, 
But if they don't listen, he might have to. This is their final chance. Now, we're going to navigate our way through this text by looking at the four things that Paul wants the Corinthians to do before he gets there. Here's our roadmap for this evening. Paul wants the Corinthians to recognize he's a true apostle, to realize he wants them and not their money, to repent and be restored, and rejoice in fellowship. That's where we're going tonight. Okay, so let's first look at the first thing that Paul wants the Corinthians to do. And that is recognize he is a true apostle. Recognize he is a true apostle. So before he ends this letter, Paul makes one final attempt at getting the Corinthians to recognize that he is the real deal. Look with me again to verse 11. Paul says, I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. So Paul's referring to everything he's just been saying in the passage that we looked at this morning in chapters 11 and 12. And he calls all that boasting in his weaknesses and his sufferings that he's just done, he calls that foolishness. It's foolish that he has to defend himself and to give them this apostle CV to convince them he's legit. And he goes on to say, I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. When these super apostles came along to the Corinthian church, the Corinthians should have backed Paul. They should have backed him up because as Paul says in verse 12, when he was with them, he persevered in demonstrating among them the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. Now, signs, wonders, and miracles is Exodus language from the Old Testament. Israel saw many signs, wonders, miracles, as God saved them out of Egypt. When Jesus died and rose again, he brought about a new spiritual exodus, bringing his people out of sin and death. And as Paul and the other apostles preached the gospel of Christ, as they proclaimed across the Greco-Roman world that Christ had begun a new exodus, God did miraculous things through them to confirm the message of his grace and to prove that the kingdom of God had come. If you want evidence for that, read the book of Acts. There's lots of it. But why is Paul mentioning these signs, wonders, and miracles here? Well, these super apostles have been confusing the Corinthians about what the Christian life should look like. They're saying that the Christian life is all about power and victory, and they're saying there's no place for suffering and weakness. What we might call triumphalism. Basically trying to bring the not yet into the now. There will be a day when Christians experience no more suffering and no more weakness. There will be a day when we will experience in full the effects of Christ's victory over sin and death. But not yet, not until Christ returns and renews all things. And it's this wrong theology that's driving a lot of their criticism of Paul. Paul's opponents are saying that because Paul has suffered so much, because he is so weak and unimpressive, well, he must not be the real McCoy. We're obviously the ones worth following. We're the genuine and godly ones because we don't have the problems that he has. We don't have to face any danger. The real power lies with us. And so in these verses, Paul is saying, hold on here a minute. Yes, I'm weak. Yes, I've suffered greatly for the gospel. I've just given you a massive list of my sufferings and weaknesses, a list of all the dangers that I've had to face. 
But that doesn't mean that God's power is absent from my ministry. Even though I am nothing, I have done things among you that only God could do. All the signs and wonders and miracles that accompanied my proclamation of the gospel, that should have been all the evidence you need that I really am an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is your final chance to get this sorted out in your minds before I get there. Because if you leave me, you leave the gospel and you leave Christ. Now, as we said throughout this series, one of the main ways this book helps us is to help us to know a godly and genuine minister of the gospel when we see one. It also helps us discern who might not be genuine. And I think there is a warning for us here to look out for leaders who, who teach triumphalism. Leaders like that typically remove the call to pick up our cross and follow Christ from their message. They remove suffering from the agenda. They fail to recognize that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. And instead they say we have all the power within us to win all our battles and be successful. They teach you that you can go and kill your giants. They say you've got the power within you to live your best life. No, that's not a right understanding of the Christian life or how God displays his power. God's power is displayed as he uses our weaknesses for his purposes. God's power is displayed as he uses the message of the gospel to transform lives. A message so foolish to so many and yet it is the power of God to save. A genuine minister of the gospel knows that. And a genuine minister of the gospel sees themselves like Paul sees himself. As nothing. They know that all the power for ministry comes from God. And they will teach you that God's power is made perfect in your weakness. They know that the call to follow Christ is a call to take up our cross and follow him. And I wonder, as you serve in the life of this church, as you share your faith in Jesus with your friends and your family, do you rely on God for all the power and the strength you need to do that? Like Paul, do you see yourself as nothing? Because if we don't do that, if we're constantly trying to operate on our own ability, on our own strength, well, we're in danger of blowing up with pride. We're in danger of burning out. God's power is displayed as he uses us in our weakness, and it's displayed when we rely on his word to do the work of transformation in people's lives. Okay, so that's our first point. Paul wants the Corinthians to recognize he is a true apostle. Our second point is this. Paul wants the Corinthians to realize he wants them, not their money. He wants them to realize he wants them, not their money. So the next issue that Paul wants resolved before he gets there has to do with money. When Paul was with them on his first couple of visits, he resolved not to be a financial burden to them. He didn't charge them for his services. He didn't ask for personal financial support, all because he didn't want to burden the Corinthians. But his rivals have twisted this and used it against them. They're saying, Paul can't be trusted because he didn't want any money from you. I've never heard of a pastor being criticized for not taking money from a church, but that's what they did to Paul. They accused him of being manipulative. They said, Paul is just buttering you up so that you give generously to his collection for the churches in Jerusalem. And once he's gone with the money, he's going to take a massive cut for himself. Basically, they're saying he's committing charity fraud. He's setting up a GoFundMe page for the churches in Jerusalem, but then he's going to take the money for himself. 
And Paul responds to that accusation in a few different ways in the space of a few verses. On one level, he's wonderfully sarcastic. Uh, In verse 16, what a crafty fellow I am. I caught you by trickery. As if to say, like, come on, this is ridiculous. Wise up. And he also points to Titus. He says, when I sent Titus to you, did he exploit you? No. So I haven't exploited you through anyone else. But the most significant way Paul responds to this accusation is by showing them the fatherly heart he has for them. Look with me again to verse 14 and 15. He says, Now I am ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Paul is saying, I don't want your money. I want you. Why? Because you are my spiritual children. Fathers don't spend their kids' money. They do the opposite, don't they? They spend their money on their children. If you've been blessed with children, could you imagine charging them rent to live in your house? Or making them pay for lifts? Or for food? I would never turn around to my one-year-old Seth and say, oh, you want dinner? No problem, that'll be $4.99. You would never do that to your children. You gladly spend your money to take care of them. And that's how Paul feels about the Corinthians. He gladly spends himself for their spiritual good. All he cares about is building them up. And that's what he says in verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. And everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. I'm sure when the Corinthians heard that, they would have said, well, to be honest, Paul, it kind of does sound like this entire letter you've been defending yourself. But Paul isn't defending his apostleship or himself for his own sake. He went into that massive apostle CV that we looked at this morning so that they wouldn't leave the true gospel and follow a different Jesus. He's been doing all this for their strengthening. That's what he wants. He wants them to be built up in the faith. And so again, as we look at Paul's heart for these Corinthians, we see what genuine ministry looks like. Genuine church leaders want you and not your money. They want to edify you, not exploit you. They care about your soul, not your salary. And this phrase Paul uses beautifully summarizes what ministry should be. Godly leaders will spend themselves and be spent. They will be expended for your sake, for your spiritual good. Just like Christ himself was spent for us on the cross. And that's a challenge for all of us, isn't it? Are we spending ourselves for other people? Obviously, we need time to rest. We need to look after our own spiritual health. We need to look after our families. But part of being a Christian means spending ourselves for the spiritual good of others. Even when, like Paul, it's not always appreciated or reciprocated, even if our motives are sometimes misunderstood or twisted, even if we're not always thanked for it, we are called to strengthen one another, to pour our lives into discipling people and building others up in their faith. And maybe, maybe tonight God wants you to think about that.
Am I saving myself for myself? Or am I spending myself for the good of others? It's a good question to ask. Okay, so Paul wants the Corinthians to recognize he is a true apostle. He wants them to realize he wants them and not their money. The third thing Paul wants them to do is to repent and be restored. Repent and be restored. At this point, Paul addresses the elephant in the room. He's about to address all the things that give him the most anxiety about going back to Corinth. The things that are going to cause the most confrontation when he gets there. Look with me again to verse 20 and 21. For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. Paul's afraid that when he gets there, he's going to find massive sin problems, and he's going to have to exercise church discipline. He's grieved at the thought that he might have to remove some unrepentant individuals from the church. And this church discipline is on the cards because of two categories of sin in Corinth. One, there's sins that are dividing the church, discord, jealousy, slander, gossip, etc. And two, there's sins of a sexual nature that are still being put up with in the church. And Paul's warning to the people in Corinth who are still doing these things is to repent Look what he says from verse 1 in chapter 13. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already, already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. Since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure... He was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. So Paul is saying, this is your third and final warning. If you don't repent, I will not spare you. You're listening to these guys who say they're so powerful and I'm so weak. Well, you want to see God's power? If you don't get this sorted out, you will see Christ move powerfully among you. And Paul's not messing around. Look at the parallel he's just drawn out in verse 4. Christ looked weak when he was crucified. But by God's power, he rose again and became the powerful, resurrected Christ who will return again to judge the living and the dead. And Paul is saying this is a similar pattern with him. He's saying the Paul he came to them in weakness, not being a burden, not with showy speech, spending himself for them, he's going to come back in God's power to judge them if they will not repent. His previous visit looked like weakness. This time, even though he really doesn't want to, he's going to come in power. So he says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Verse 5, test yourselves. Show proof that Christ is in you. If Christ is in you, you will repent of your sin. If Christ is in you, you'll recognize that we haven't failed the test. In other words, you'll recognize that Christ is in us. If Christ is in you, you'll listen to me. So Paul has said the hard things he's needed to say. If you have ever been in a tough, awkward meeting, then you'll know how it feels to have, have to say things you'd rather not have to talk about at all. But out of love for this church, 
out of love for Christ. Paul has said what needed to be said. But notice as soon as he said the hard words, he prays for them from verse 7. He prays that they won't do anything wrong, but they will do what is right. He prays that they will be fully restored. He tells them that he doesn't want to have to use his authority to tear them down. He'd rather use it to build them up. It's so obvious that Paul's motivation is love. Parents don't want to discipline their children, but sometimes it is the most loving thing to do. Paul is saying this as a spiritual father. And as we think about how this applies to us, we can see how a godly leader goes about church discipline. We can see how a pastor should use their spiritual authority when sin problems do persist in the church. Let me give you four really quick principles. First of all, they should grieve over having to use that spiritual authority. They should mourn over having to remove people from the church. Paul grieved over the people who had sinned. He took no delight in doing this whatsoever. And he wrote this letter so that they would repent and he wouldn't have to discipline them. Secondly, they should only take disciplinary action when the sin is obvious and there's no repentance of it. This was the third time that Paul warned them about their sin. They had plenty of time to repent and change their ways. And thirdly, they should get the facts straight. They should gather the evidence. They won't base any decisions on rumors or hearsay. That's why Paul says every matter must be established by two or three witnesses. They should, always, they should also always aim for the restoration of the individual. That's the point of church discipline. That's the goal. Church discipline is like plunging someone into an ice bath to wake them up. You remove an unrepentant person from the church fellowship so they wake up and repent of their sin. And removing them doesn't necessarily mean they're gone for good. Hopefully by God's grace they will repent and they can be restored to the fellowship and be welcomed back with open arms. And the last principle, godly leaders should care deeply enough about the individual, the church, and the church's witness that they won't wait forever. If they can't affirm someone's faith because they are continually unrepentant of clear and obvious sin, then they should exercise church discipline. Because the soul of that person and the church's witness of Christ in the community are at stake. The church is called to be an embassy of Christ's kingdom. We are the body of Christ and we represent him to the people around us. Our lives bear witness to him. And so perhaps the personal application for us is that we each need to examine ourselves to see if we're doing that. Now I'm really good at examining other people. I'm not so good at examining myself. Maybe you're the same, I don't know. But this passage calls each of us to test ourselves, to make sure that Christ is in us. When was the last time you examined yourself? It's dangerous to go through life professing faith in Christ but never examining yourself because there is a day coming when God himself will examine us to see if we are in Christ. And that's a test we don't want to fail. Like the Corinthians needed to examine themselves before Paul gets there, we need to examine ourselves before Christ returns and it's too late. Now the obvious question is how do we know if Christ is in us? Well, if we're in Christ, we'll hold to the faith. We'll stay faithful to the teachings of Christ and his apostles. As well as that, if we're in Christ, we'll experience the kind of life that we can only have if Christ is in us. We'll have that inner assurance that we belong to him. 
will bear resemblance to him as we grow to be more and more like him. People will be able to see the spiritual fruit in our lives. Now, we need to be careful of the other extreme, don't we? We need a balance here. It's also a very dangerous thing to go through life only examining ourselves and not looking to the person and the finished work of Christ. Our default position needs to be to keep our eyes on who Christ is and what he has done for us. We need to keep remembering that when he died on the cross and rose again, he put robes of righteousness in all those who believed in him. There's nothing we could have done or can do to make ourselves right with God. Christ is the only one that can do that for us. So Paul's not saying, examine yourself to see if you are sinless and you measure up to God's demands. He's not saying, examine yourself and make sure you're really good at Bible studies. He's saying, examine yourself to make sure you're still trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and there's evidence of that in your life. If we only look at ourselves, we'll be in trouble, won't we? We'll be overwhelmed with the guilt of our sin and our shame. We'll despair at our failures and our weaknesses. But if we look to him, we'll have that inner assurance and joy. We'll keep bearing fruit and becoming more like him. Okay, so Paul wants the Corinthians to recognize he is a true apostle, realize he wants them, not their money. He wants them to repent and be restored. The final thing that Paul wants them to do is rejoice in fellowship. Rejoice in fellowship. Paul is still hopeful that this awkward meeting might not have to be that awkward after all. He ends on such a positive note because he's optimistic that this letter that the Holy Spirit has inspired him to write is going to work. And it's going to produce the repentance he wants to see. Look with me again to verse 11 to 12. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Paul's final wish for the Corinthians is that they would rejoice. Right back at the start of the letter, he said, we work with you for your joy. He wants them to experience the joy that comes when believers live in fellowship with God and in fellowship with one another. And he starts with a list of imperatives or commands that have to do with their fellowship with one another. He says, strive for full restoration. The the Greek word for restoration in this passage has the sense for mending your ways or putting disjointed bones back together again. He's saying, your church community in Corinth needs mending. So sort out the issues that are going on and come back together again. And then he says, encourage one another or literally comfort one another. He's assuming that these issues have caused a lot of pain. And so this situation is going to require a bit of tenderness. They're going to need to comfort one another. And then he says, be of one mind. Now that doesn't mean they forget the truth and go with the lowest common denominator to keep everyone happy. It means he wants there to be no unnecessary divisions. He wants their instinct to be geared towards unity. And he calls them to live in peace. Lay down your weapons. Stop attacking one another. And the promise for the Corinthians is that if they do these things, the God of love and peace will be with them. What a wonderful promise. And that's a wonderful promise for us as well, isn't it? Every church has 
a culture. And the promise is that if that culture is created and shaped by the gospel, if it's gospel culture, a culture that's totally countercultural in the society we live in, where we are all one in Christ Jesus, where we encourage one another and live in peace with one another, where we are united in our belief in the truth of God's words. If we are a place where broken sinners can come and be honest about their sin and they can find restoration through repentance and not be met with judgment and condemnation, if we have a church culture like that, then the God of love and peace has promised he will be with us. Isn't that an amazing promise? Let's strive to be a church like that. Let's spend ourselves as we cultivate gospel culture in Charlotte Chapel. And as we do that, the warmth of our fellowship with one another, with one another should be tangible. And I think that's what Paul's getting at in verse 12 when he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, now, I don't think we're supposed to run around kissing one another. Um, sorry to, to disappoint all our male students. Um, the spirit of this command is that we should show our love for one another in tangible ways. For us, that's probably more likely to be a handshake or a hug. I like a fist pump. Um, our affection for one another should be obvious. And then finally, Paul ends this letter to this fractured, confused, hurting church with these words. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. What this church needs what they all need, you see that? From the people causing division, the super apostles rivaling Paul, the faithful believers, they all need to know the grace of Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If you're here tonight and you're someone that if you were to examine yourself, you wouldn't say that Christ is in you, you wouldn't say that you're a Christian, this is the embrace that you are welcomed into. There is a God who loves you and sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. Each one of us here who know Jesus have received his grace. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We all deserve God's wrath for rebelling against him. But because Jesus Christ, God's son, died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin and rose again in power from the dead, we have received undeserved grace. We have received forgiveness a new eternal life in him. And so we can say that we know the love of God. The Bible says this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And we can also say that we have received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is living in us, making us aware of the wonderful fellowship we have with God because of Christ. If you're not a Christian, we long for you to enter that embrace. We long for you to know the love of God. And just like this blessing was available to everyone in Corinth, even the people who Paul had to sort out, it's available to you. If you repent of your sin and put your trust in Christ, you can know the grace of Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If that's, tonight, if that's you tonight, we'd love to speak to you. We'd love to help you to come to faith in Christ. Please do speak to us. But let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we've seen in your word tonight. We thank you for the amazing grace that you have shown us in Jesus Christ when he died and rose again to save us from our sin. We thank you, Father, that you love us. How wonderfully you've demonstrated that for us. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit dwelling in us, giving us the assurance of faith. Lord, help us to be a church who that has gospel culture, that loves you, that loves, that we all love one another. That we may glorify your name. That people would see from the outside and want to join in. That they would want to know this God that we speak about. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.